discussing Joseph last time and ran out of time. Actually, this is quite a story that God has put together and chosen to spend several chapters uh, reviewing for us so that we might understand more about Joseph. Uh, God was going to bless through Abraham's seed, uh, through Isaac, and then through Jacob. Uh, and the sons of, of Jacob then would become the twelve tribes of Israel. And we saw uh, in the description of what would come upon each one at a latter time that Joseph would be the very, by far, the most blessed of all the sons, and that Ephraim would be blessed ten times over uh, what Manasseh would. So Ephraim takes the lead and uh, as, as the younger son of Joseph. And Joseph here uh, is used by God to bring blessing and to get Israel actually started on the road to becoming a great nation. It's, I find it interesting here when it talks about the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine that this was not a punishment necessarily upon Mitzrayim or Egypt or upon the world. It was a means of getting Jacob and his family down into Mitzrayim where they would be under a circumstance where they would multiply and be able to grow into uh, many, many people. Several million came out of there when they finally came out 430 years later. So it was a climate in which they could grow. It was also a climate under which they would forget God and then have to be delivered by God. So Joseph is used as an instrument here uh, very powerfully to make sure that the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were fulfilled. Now we saw and closed last time with a thought in chapter 41 of Genesis and verse 46 how that Joseph was only 30 years old when he stood here before Pharaoh and this time of blessing and then famine began to occur. So he had been through, as I recounted last week, <clears throat> many, many ups and downs in his life, uh, sold into slavery, uh, put back into prison in Egypt, and then released from there was taken before Pharaoh to explain his dreams, which catapulted him into great favor in Pharaoh's eyes. So God has his way of putting his people where they need to be, when they need to be there, in order to accomplish what God wants accomplished. And he has done that with leaders of the world and his servants over and over again, actually, uh, throughout history, and I think is going to do so again because the church has to again become prominent. Uh, it has almost disappeared now since Herbert Armstrong died over 30 years ago and uh, is hardly known in the world anymore, but it will come back into extreme prominence. Uh, it will be the most prominent thing on earth uh, before this is all finished. Anyway, uh, he was still a young man, and it says in the seven plenteous years in verse 47, the earth brought forth by handfuls. <laughs> Not just to come here and there, but all you can hold in your hands means a great deal. <coughs> so he gathered up all the food of the seven years, 
and laid the food up in the cities, and the food of the field, which is round about every city, laid he up in the same. So it says, he gathered corn as the sand of the sea, very much until he quit counting, for it was without number. He couldn't even keep up with it, uh, of how much corn, how much grain there was that was laid up during that seven years. So that must have been quite a testimony uh, to Pharaoh and to all Egypt that Joseph's dream was indeed true and it was a correct, not Joseph's dream, that Pharaoh's dream was true and correctly interpreted by Joseph. And he had two sons during that time, uh, the firstborn being, being Manasseh. And he says, this is an interesting comment in verse 51. For God said, he has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. So he named him Manasseh. Now, I commented my idea, my thought, my conjecture, if you will, last time about the traumas that Joseph went through growing up and the hate and the jealousy and the meanness of his brothers. And he actually says that right here. He forgot all that he had been through, all the toil that had gotten him to the place that he was, and all my father's house. His father's house had been to him not a blessing, but an impediment to a happy life. So his son, firstborn one, Manasseh, he says, this son has made me forget all that I went through with my brothers. This, this makes it all worth it, in other words. So he named him Manasseh. In the name of the second called he Ephraim, for God had caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. And of course, Ephraim means fruitful. And we find in Genesis 49, doubly fruitful and running over the wall and greater blessings than anyone could have ever thought. And God moved him ahead of Manasseh as the firstborn, as is told in Jeremiah 31. Ephraim is my firstborn. So God raised him to that level. Uh, I think I've commented before that Herbert Armstrong used to say that the reason God started the end-time work in the United States was because it was the only nation in the world that could have supported such a work. Now, he was correct in that being a fact. On the other hand, I don't think that was the reason God started it in the United States. The reason is because it was Ephraim and it was in the original promised land. But the blessings that he had promised upon Ephraim in the end time were so great that as a result of that, this was the only land that could uh, support a worldwide work such as was done. Even England needed a certain amount of, uh, of help from Pasadena in order to keep the college going, in order to do a work in Britain. Uh, Canada probably had more members, really, than even Britain ever had, although Canada may be part Manasseh and part Reuben and maybe even part Benjamin. Who knows what all mixer is there, but this is the only nation that could have done what was done, and that was because it is Ephraim, because it got all that fruitful blessing and climbing over the walls. 
Anyway, verse 53, the seven years of plenteousness that was in the land of Egypt were ended. And the seven years of dearth began to come, according as Joseph had said. And it was in all lands, but all the land of Egypt had bread. Because he had laid it up, not because they were producing it, but because it was stored. And uh, when they all began to scream, they didn't have anything to eat. He said, the Pharaoh just said, go to Joseph and <laughs> do whatever Joseph says. So Joseph was totally in charge, and Pharaoh just stood back and let Joseph do whatever Joseph needed to do. You might recall that story in Ezra and Nehemiah, where Cyrus uh, was said that he had been ordained to build the temple, but he didn't do any of it. He just told uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and those who were involved, here, here's all the money, take everything you need, just go do this. And uh, I think those are patterns for the way things will be here in the end time as well, when God's work has to be done, and it will need financed, it will need uh, support. So the treasures, God says, are buried, and his temple vessels are buried, and they will be brought forth at the right time and handed to God's church to do the work that has to be done. So what Joseph did here... Uh, is paramount in the story of the end time. Now, here in the end time, we also had a similar situation where there was a time of plenty. When God began to work with Herbert Armstrong 1,900 years uh, after Christ, uh, made that announcement about the Jubilee, the church began to grow, and it was blessed, and it became very, very fruitful, and it spread all over the world, and many, many people were called. And then, because of our lackadaisical, ho-hum, go-through-the-motions attitude and sin, God blew it into pieces. So, blessing came, and then cursing. And with our nation, God gave this land to us, the land of Ephraim, and we became the greatest nation on earth by far that has ever existed. And then, because of disobedience, that blessing has now begun to be turned into cursing. And just as the church was blown apart and spewed out, uh, and that is now history, <laughs> uh, the nation is about to be blown apart and spewed out, and that is near-to-come prophecy. Not quite happened yet, but we are on the very edge of that happening. So expect things to start coming apart wholesale, big time in this country in the very near future. God had put a time element here, and uh, the time element for the church falling apart uh, will be followed again by the same thing with the nation. So... The Pharaoh was the famine was everywhere, sore in all lands. Chapter forty two, Jacob saw there was corn in Egypt, heard about that, and he said to his sons, Why do you just sit here and look at each other? <laughs> there wasn't any harvest to be had, there wasn't anything to do. So they were just sitting there looking at each other. And he said, I've heard that there's corn in Mitzrium. Go down there and buy from there that we may live and not die. So Ten sons went down to buy corn, but Benjamin, Joseph's brother, didn't go. Uh, Jacob was worried that 
something might happen to him, and he lamented what had happened to Joseph all those years. So they went down, and uh, verse 6, Joseph was the governor of the land, and uh, he was the one that sold the corn. So they came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. Remember Joseph's dream from long ago <laughs> that his brothers got angry about and his father also got angry about but thought about it. And now we have some years later that actually coming true. Actually quite a bit of time had expired in between. Joseph was 17 when he was sold. And when they came here, uh, he was 30, so seven years of plenty would have made him 37, uh, and he would have been at least 38 by this time when uh, his brothers came and bowed before him. So that's, uh, that's over 20 years uh, before that dream came to pass, but indeed it did. So when God imparts knowledge, it will come to pass. It may take time, and it's been now a little over 20 years since we learned what we learned about the church and about prophecy and about what God is going to do about all this. So maybe that also ties in, because it's in the land of Ephraim, we're the land of Joseph, and God is going to start doing a great work here in this end time. And uh, we already know what the story is, because God revealed those answers. Anyway, Joseph saw his brothers, and he knew them, but he spoke roughly and made himself strange to them. He didn't show any sign of recognition. He had on different clothes uh, there than they wore. Uh, whether he was bearded or shaven, it doesn't say, but he... It had been 20 years since they'd seen him, and uh, he had changed and they had changed. Have you, have you met people that you knew 20, 30, 40 years ago and met them somewhere and not known who they were? I've done that. Of course, when I, when I see people that I knew in college, of course, that's been 50 years, but <laughs> uh, a lot of times I don't know them. I went to my mother's funeral uh, here a couple of years ago, and uh, a lot of my cousins I grew up with, I had no clue which was which. Didn't couldn't recognize them till they told me who they were, and then I looked real carefully through the creases and folds and sags and and uh, gray hair and no hair, and and then I could kind of figure out what they who they were, but not right off. So there'd been enough change and uh, and enough of the way he approached it that they didn't know who he was. And there was a translator, too. So he asked them where they were from, and from the land of Canaan to buy food. So he knew them, but they didn't know him. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them. So he remembered that they were to bow down before him, and there they were on their faces, on their knees, in front of him. So he said, you're spies to see the nakedness of the land. You've come to see where our weaknesses are, and you've come here to uh, try to conquer us. You're pretty hard on them. <coughs> and this isn't the end of the story by any means. Uh, they said to him, No, 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 we're not spies. We just came to buy food. We're all 
one man's sons. We're not a bunch of spies from the land. We're true men. We're we're honest. Yeah, right, they were. <laughs> but, but they weren't spies, that's true. <clears throat> they said, no, no, you've come to spy us out. They said, no, we were twelve brothers. Uh, one's gone and one stayed with father. Fourteen, Joseph said to them, this is that I spoke to you saying you were spies. Three times he said it. All right, we'll prove you. We'll see. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go forth from here except your youngest brother come here. Well, now he's really tying them up. <clears throat> he knew his dad's feelings toward Benjamin and what they had been toward him. And he knew he was putting these boys in a tough spot. And he did it on purpose. They had some lessons they needed to learn, and he was going to help them along the best he could. So he said, send one of you and let him fetch your brother, and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be proved. So he was going to lock them all up and just send one back to get Benjamin. So he put them in prison for three days, and then Joseph said to them, this do and live, for I fear God. Uh, so now instead of sending them all, keeping them all in prison but one, he's going to turn them all loose but one. And he said, go and carry corn, corn for the famine of your houses. But bring your youngest brother to me, so shall your words be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. So he's still putting their foot, feet to the fire here. And they said one to another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul. Didn't know this was their brother, but they thought back, and their conscience was bothering them over what they had done. And when he pleaded with us, we would not hear. Therefore, this distress, this trouble has come upon us. Uh, Reuben stood up and said, I didn't speak to you saying, Do not sin against the child. Uh, you would not hear. Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spoke by an interpreter. So he knew everything they said, and they had no clue that he was listening. So he got away from them and, and cried, wept. And when he, once he got that over with, he talked with them again and uh, took Simeon and bound him up. And then he said, fill their sacks with corn, and then restore every man's money in his sack, and to give them provision for the way, and thus did he to them. And they laded their donkeys with the corn and left. And one of them opened his sack to give his donkey food, uh, and saw the money, for it was in his sack's mouth. Oh, he said, my money's restored, it's even in my sack. And their heart failed them, and they were afraid, saying one to another, what is this that God has done to us? Now, they didn't blame Joseph here, they blamed God. What's, you know, they knew God's law. They knew what they had done to Joseph, and they saw this as retribution from God. And indeed, I think it was. God was working this whole thing out and caused it to happen in the way that it did. Joseph had to be, and particularly then Ephraim, had to be the leaders of Israel. And God had put him in a position where the rest would bow down to him, and he would be their leader. 
So they came to Jacob, their father, and land the king of Canaan, and gave the report. And says, man, that guy in Egypt that's in charge was hard on us. And we said, we're true, we're not spies, we're twelve brethren, one is not, the youngest with our fathers in the land of Canaan. And the man of the country said to us, you're going to have to go through a test. Bring your youngest brother to me, verse 34, then I know you aren't spies. And it came to pass, as they emptied their sacks, that, behold, every man's money was in his sack. And when both they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. They hadn't opened the other sacks yet, but then they opened them all there to perhaps store the grain, and all the money was discovered. Jacob was upset. He said, you've bereaved me of my children, Joseph is not, Simeon is not, and now you'll take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. Now remember the promises God had made to Jacob as well. How he would be the father of many nations. And his twelve sons would be twelve nations. And yet Jacob is going through horrible distress in his life. Does it seem strange to us when Paul says, that we would go through all kinds of trials, troubles, and tribulations to enter into the kingdom of God. And that Psalm thirty-four nineteen says, Men are the afflictions of the righteous, but God will deliver them out of them all. So, and Paul said, Think it not strange when fiery trials come upon you. Well, Jacob was having a fiery trial. Now, what had Jacob done wrong? Nothing really that's recounted here. And yet he was going through all this agony in his life, uh, thinking he now had lost three sons. So Reuben, uh, this may supposed to have been Judah, because Judah takes over, and he's mentioned in the rest of the story about this. Uh, it may have been Judah that says this, saying, Stay, Slay my two sons if I bring him not to you. Deliver him into my hand, and I will bring him to you again. And he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone of Rachel. And if something happens down to me, I'll die right here. Anyway, the famine was sore, and they'd eaten up the corn they had. And uh, Jacob said, Go buy us a little food. Verse 3, Judah said to him, The man did solemnly protest, saying, you won't see me again except you bring your brother. Jacob didn't want to face that. I'm sure he thought about it a lot. But he kind of avoided it when he told him to go again. So he says, if you'll send Benjamin, we'll go. Then verse 6, Israel said, Wherefore dealt you so ill with me as to tell the man whether you had yet another brother? Why did you even tell him about Benjamin? But he says, well, he asked us some pretty straight questions, and we couldn't get out of answering them, because we were on the line there, and we needed food. Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and our little ones, and I will be surety for him. So the context indicates it was Judah, not Reuben, there in verse 37. Uh, so he said, it must be so now. Do this. Verse 11, take of the best fruits in the land in your vessels and carry them down to the 
man a present. A little balm, a little honey, spices, myrrh, nuts, and almonds. So they were about starved to death, but there were these smaller items that they still had uh, that they could send as a gift, probably not a whole lot. So he said, double the money, and also the money that you had found in your sack, and maybe it was just a mistake. <laughs> yeah, that kind of mistakes happen, right? You buy stuff, and then they put the money all back in 12 sacks. Does that ever happen to you at the grocery store? You buy 12 sacks of food, and they put all the money back in every sack. <clears throat> Not, that wasn't an oversight, obviously. But they had to find some way to figure out, what are we going to do here? So take your brother and go talk to the man. And God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may send away your other brother and Benjamin. Uh, if I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So he counted the cost. God tells us we have to count the cost. If we have to lose our children, our family, our lands, our homes, our mates, it doesn't matter. We are here committed to serve God, and he tells us before we're baptized to count the cost. And once you put your hand to the plow, you cannot turn back, Luke 9.62. So he counted the cost and said, hey, if I lose all my kids, I lose all my kids. That's just, that's the price I've got to pay. So they took what he had told them and went down and stood before Joseph. <clears throat> so he saw Benjamin with them, verse 16, and said, Bring these men home and uh, butcher uh, an animal and make ready, for these men shall dine with me at noon. So he's going to take them to lunch. And he's going to let them worry all the time uh, leading up to lunch what's going on here. Because they, they're getting mixed messages, aren't they? Uh, he tells us we're spies, and then he puts our money in the sack. And then he tells us we'll all die if we don't bring our brother, or we'll become slaves. And then he invites us to lunch. So they, their minds are going a hundred different directions and their emotions, trying to figure out what was going on here. He had them in total confusion. So... Uh, the man did as Joseph said and brought the men into Joseph's house. Now, most customers who came to buy grain didn't get that kind of treatment. They came, they gave money, they got their corn or grain and went home. And here they had been invited into essentially the ruler of the whole empire's house. And they were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, because of the money that was returned in our sacks at the first time are we brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall on us and take us for bondmen and our asses. So they were in total confusion. Why are we in this house? It must be not just for lunch, but so he has an excuse to destroy us. So they went to the steward of the house and they talked to him about it and trying to figure out what's going on. And he said, Sir, we came indeed down the first time to buy food and told him the story and how the money was returned and we brought out more money and we can't tell who put the money in our sacks and we're poor things. Well, we don't know what to do. And he said, Peace be to you, fear not. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. In other words, 
God directed me, and Joseph directed me, to put it back in your bags. Then he brought Simeon out. And then he brought them into Joseph's house and gave them water, washed their feet, or they washed their feet, the servants, and he gave food for their donkeys. And they made ready the present against Joseph, came at noon, uh, for they heard that they should eat bread there. So they started getting ready for lunch. <coughs> so then Joseph comes home. And they quickly brought him the present, <laughs> which was in their hand into the house, and bowed themselves to him to the earth. So they were trying to figure out how to get good favor, and brought the present, and again bowed down before him. So this happened more than once, and will happen yet more. Uh, and he asked them of their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? spoke? Is he still alive? Oh yeah, our, our father's in good health, he's alive. And they bowed their heads again uh, before him. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. So he spoke kindly to Joseph. And Joseph then got in a big hurry, for his emotions yearned upon his brother. And he sought a place to go cry his eyes out, and he entered into his chamber, and he wept there. And then once he'd gotten over that, uh, he washed his face and went out, and didn't say anything, and said, set on bread. So then they served lunch, but uh, the Egyptians and Joseph ate apart from them because it was an abomination for an Egyptian to eat with a Hebrew. Uh, so it was uh, racism, uh, kind of like it was in this country where they had segregation. You couldn't eat in the same table, couldn't worship in the same hall or anything else. Uh, so they sat, and those were, those were the black people. Uh, the land of Ham is where this transpired. So... Uh, Israel became slaves to the black race of Mitzrayim. And they uh, practiced segregation from the Hebrews. Interesting, isn't it, how it's turned around. And in this nation, Ham was uh, made slavery or in, made into slavery or taken into slavery by, by Ephraim and did the same kind of segregation. And there has been turmoil. And they sat before him, the first boarding according to his birthright, and right on down the line to the youngest. Uh, and, they, and he gave Benjamin five times as much as any of the others, and they drank and were merry with him. So they, he really heaped it on Benjamin. They, they still didn't smell a rat, though, did they? <laughs> because they, they knew that Joseph preferred Benjamin, and that his dad did. And here he gets five times as much, and yet they, they're still confused. So then he told his servant again, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put his money in his sack. But the plot deepens here. He says, put my silver cup that I drink out of, my favorite cup, the one that they saw me drinking out of at lunch, put that in Benjamin's sack. So as soon as it was light the next morning, uh, they left. Uh, Joseph said to his steward, 
follow them. And when you do overtake them, say, why have you stolen from me again? I brought you to lunch. I fed you well. I gave you the, what you asked for and sent you on your way. And now you've done evil to me. And he overtook them and spoke to them these same words. And they says, what are you talking about? We didn't do anything evil. God forbid we should do according to this thing. Yeah, that's right. God would forbid it. Behold the money which we found in our sacks' mouths. We brought, we brought it back to you. So why would we steal out of the house? So he said, With whomsoever your servants it be found, both let him die, and we also will be my Lord's bondmen. Now they had conspired to kill Joseph years ago, and now they're pronouncing death on wherever that cup is found. you got to take care of yourself first, you know. <laughs> and he said, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my servant, and you shall be blameless. So he didn't accept the death penalty there. But he says, wherever it is, is the one that's going to take the heat for this. So man, did they hurry and got their sacks off on the ground and opened them up. And he began searching again with the oldest and found the cup in Benjamin's sack. Then they rent their clothes and laid it every man his ass and returned to the city. Now they got the picture of what could happen here, that Benjamin might even die. And after all they'd gone through with Jacob mourning for Joseph and pining away all those years and blaming an animal, and they knew who was guilty, uh, now they rent their clothes. It's, here's real trouble again. So they came back to Joseph's house, um, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. So they worshipped him again. Joseph said, What deed is this you've done? Didn't you know that a man like I am could figure out where my cup went? <laughs> You're the only ones at lunch. I'm not that stupid. Judah said, What shall we say? What shall we speak? We don't have an excuse. How shall we clear ourselves? God's found out the iniquity of your servants. We are my Lord's servants, both we and he also with whom the cup is found. We, we, we can't explain it. He said, God forbid that I should do so, but the man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant. And as for you, get you up in peace to your father. So he says, I'm only going to punish one, Benjamin, and you get out of here. And Joseph was thinking, yeah, you'll have to go face dad. And uh, this is not going to be pleasant, saying that you didn't bring Benjamin back. Then Judah came near him and said, O oh, my Lord, let your servant, I pray you, speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let, let let your anger burn against me, for you are even as Pharaoh. And then he recounts the story about Father and his brother, and how Joseph, or I mean how Jacob had lost one son, and, and uh, Benjamin was... And uh, verse 21, he said to your servants, Bring him down to me that I may set my eyes upon him. He said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he leave his father, his father would die. And then we told him how we couldn't see you unless we did bring him. So he's actually telling the truth here and trying to plead for mercy. So in verse 25, Dad told us, Go get a little more food. 
And we said we can't go down without Benjamin. And then Jacob laid it, or yeah, Jacob laid it back on them. Says, "Your my wife bore me two sons, and if you take this one from me, mischief and mischief befalls him. My gray hairs will go into the grave." So now, therefore, I come to your servant, my father, and the lad be not with us, or if I come to my father, seeing his life is bound up in the lad's life, he's going to die. And how can I go tell dad about this, verse 34? Well, Joseph had been pulling a a sandy on them, and uh, at this point he couldn't handle it anymore. Chapter 45 Joseph could not refrain himself before them all that stood by him, and he cried, Cause every man to go out for me. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. So he didn't send them out. He sent all the Egyptians out and uh, revealed who he was. And he wept and cried aloud. And the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh, although they weren't in the room, uh, could hear. He must have been putting on quite a display there of wailing and crying and weeping. He said to his brethren, I am Joseph, does my father yet live? And they could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. They were trying to figure out, is this really real? Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Are you, are you getting the picture yet? How would he have known that uh, had he not been... I mean, he's the only one that would have known that. So he was revealing something to them in the story that they knew was to be true. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me here. For God did send me before you to preserve life. Says this was all the hand of God. Think about that. All that Joseph went through... God put him through on purpose so that he might give life to his brothers and be their leader and that they could look to him uh, for help. Now, have we been in that position in this country here in the end time? On a physical level, foreign aid to other countries by America was a huge part of a lot of people staying alive for a lot of years. And had it not been for the largesse and the obedience of God's people in Ephraim, this nation, the word of God could not have gone out to the whole world and people been called of many nations. So God started this process clear back then, and the process continues today among the tribes of Israel. Ephraim today is in the position of firstborn and has been a blessing to the whole world and has been blessing to the whole church. And when the cursing that is going on in spiritual Israel today uh, continues with the rest of Israel, then Joseph, particularly Ephraim, will be used again at the beginning of the millennium to draw the people back to the land, the promised land, the original promised land, which was also the land of Ephraim, and be a blessing to all those people and uh, there will be feasts like there has never been before in the beginning of the millennium. So just as God gave those seven years of plenty, 
plenty will occur in the millennium again with the same actors, with the same situation. So he says God did all this. Could God have done it a different way? Yeah, he could have. He could have been easier on Jacob, and he could have been easier on Joseph. And he could have been easier on these brothers, I suppose, too. But he let them go through an awful lot because they needed to learn. Now, God didn't have to do with us what he's done to us, but we have to learn. And hopefully, we're learning. Hopefully, we worship him with all our hearts, minds, bodies, and souls, and he can again begin to bless us. So he says, for these two years has the famine been in the land. That means he would have been about 39 at this point. And yet there are five years in the which there shall neither be earring or harvest. It's been two tough years, going to be five more of them. God does not do things unless he warns through his servants the prophets. And we have all the testimony of the prophets in the Old Testament about what would happen here at the end, and indeed it is happening even as they laid it out, and we did not understand it. But now we're beginning to know and understand. So Joseph finally understood, and they also then were let in on the message. So he said, verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And that is going, it's happened in the church and it's going to happen again in the nation. So now it was not you that sent me here, but God. <laughs> you sold me, but it was God that was behind it all along. And he's made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. So God, he says, God did all this, and now I'm in charge of the whole thing. So he said, hurry, go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt, come down to me and hurry. And you shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have. So he said, leave the famine you're in, come here, you'll be fed, you'll be taken care of, you'll be given the best land that we have, and I will nourish you. For yet there are five years of famine, lest you and your household and all that has come, and all that you have come to poverty. Well, it's going to be the same thing again. Remember Isaiah 55, where it says, Come and have wine uh, and milk without money. Uh, God is going to do the same thing to the uh, remnant of the church. They'll come and they'll be fed and taken care of in a very blessed way, back to the promised land. And then after all Israel and the world go through the apocalypse, they will again come and be fed wine and milk without money at the beginning of the millennium. So this is a story laid out way back then that is going to be repeated. So he said, <clears throat> Tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and all that you've seen, and hurry and bring my father here. And he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed his brothers and wept upon them, and then they talked with him. <laughs> they got over the shock and uh, talked over old times, I guess. And the fame thereof was heard in Pharaoh's house. 
saying, Joseph's brethren are come, and it pleased Pharaoh well and his servants. So they were listening, and word got out pretty fast uh, what was transpiring there. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brethren, This do you. Load your animals, go to Canaan, take all this stuff and bring your dad back, and uh, don't regard your stuff, for the good of all the land of Mitzrayim is yours. He even told them that uh, they would go to Goshen. Well, where did he get that thought? Because rumor had taken it from Joseph telling them they would be given Goshen. Uh, and then Pharaoh brought it up as if it was his idea. <laughs> but that's where they went. <clears throat> God was working through Joseph all along. And he had the power to tell them where they would live. But uh, Pharaoh backed it up. So they went home in verse 26 and told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. He's governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. Where did you get this incredible story, he said. My son's dead, been dead now for over 20 years. Well, you're coming to tell me he's alive? And then they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them. And when he saw the wagons, which Jacob had, Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. So when he saw all that they'd brought back, and he knew how much money they'd taken, he knew something significant had happened. <clears throat> and the only way that could be was through Joseph. Who else did he know in Egypt? So he took his journey with all that he had, and came to Beersheba, and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Well, he left his homeland. He was willing to go down into Mitzrayim to see his son, and God gave him a vision. And Jacob said, here am I. God's servants, if they're in the right attitude, and they truly are God's servants, have a ready answer. Here I am, whatever you need, whatever you want. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Fear not to go down to, in the Mitzrayim, for I will there make of you a great nation. So he reiterates the promise that he'd given him way back when he had wrestled with Christ. And I will go down with you into Mitzrayim, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph shall put his hand upon your eyes. In other words, I'll go with you, I'll be with you, I'll make you a great people there, but your son Joseph, when you die, will be the one who closes your eyelids for you. So he went, gathered everything he had up, and headed for Joseph. Then he goes through all the ones that went with him. I don't know that we need to go through that for sake of time. You can read it if you want, but all, of, all his sons and their sons and their families and so on are, are named there. In verse 26, all the souls that came with Jacob into Egypt, which became out of his, came out of his loins, besides Jacob's sons' wives, all the souls were threescore and six. And then the sons of Joseph are counted, so that altogether of Jacob's house there were seventy. That's all, just seventy. And uh, 430 years later when they came out of there, there were actually several, several million at least three million and maybe more, because it was 600,000 men plus women and kids uh, that came out. So indeed, God made him a great nation there in captivity in Egypt. 
so Jacob sent Judah ahead to direct his face, to be the guide, to lead them. And they came into the land of Goshen, of Goshen, and Joseph got in his chariot and went to meet Israel, his father. And he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. There had been an awful lot of emotion built up in those 20-some years, and uh, they cried their eyes out. And Israel said to Joseph, Now I'm ready to die. I've seen your face because you're alive. I've been staying alive, and now it's time for me to die. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's house, I'll go show Pharaoh and say to him, My brother and my father are here, uh, and tell them that you feed cattle. You're ranchers, not shepherds. Because anybody that heard sheep and goats, the Egyptians look about, down upon and call them an abomination. It kind of reminds you, doesn't it, of in the early West in this nation where the cattlemen and the the sheepmen were always at war. Uh, they hated each other. Does history repeat or what? Anyway, 47, Joseph came, told Pharaoh, and said, They're here. They came. Uh, and he presented some of his brothers, five, to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What's your occupation? Well, we're cattlemen. It says shepherds here, but they've been primed to say shepherds or caretakers of cattle. Uh, they said to Pharaoh, We're to sojourn in your land, and we don't have pasture, for the famine is sore. Uh, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, They are indeed come to you. Uh, the land's before you, the best of the land. Go to Goshen. And if you know any men of enterprise or men of capacity and ability, make them rulers over my cattle. They're cattlemen, so put them over my cattle. They're your brothers, and you've done good, so I know they will. So Joseph brought in Jacob, and Pharaoh said to Jacob, How old are you? And he said, I'm 130 years, and few and evil have been the years of my life. Uh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and... Then Joseph placed his father and his family uh, in the land of Ramesses, in the land of Goshen. Uh, Ramesses was bigger and Goshen was a smaller area of it. So he took care of them, as he said he would in verse 12. And there was no bread in the land, for the land was very, uh, famine was sore. And uh, Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Mitzrayim and in the land of Canaan for the corn which they bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Now look, look what God does with Joseph now. He not only just blessed uh, his family, but now he is the servant of Pharaoh, and Joseph becomes a blessing to Pharaoh. Uh, he had been up to this point, but notice the rest of the story. They spent all their money on food, and now they were out of money. And they, Joseph said, verse 16, give your cattle. I'll trade you uh, food for your cattle. So that apparently there was enough to eat for some of the cattle who have survived so far, but not the grain and the things that they normally ate. So they brought their cows, and he gave them bread in exchange for horses, flocks, herds, asses, everything. 
And he fed them with bread for all this, their cattle for that year. So they gave up every livestock, all the livestock they had for a year's food. And that year ended, and then this second year they said to him, we're not trying to hide from you. Our money's gone, and now you've got all the cattle. And there's nothing left but our bodies and our land. But we're going to die before your eyes, both we and our land. So buy us and our land for bread. Well, uh, verse 20, Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. So now they had he had all their cattle, all their money, and all their land. Pharaoh owned everything. For the Egyptians sold every man his field because the famine prevailed over them. And the land of the priests he didn't uh, take. He let them eat. Then verse 23, Joseph said to the people, Behold, I bought you this day and your land for Pharaoh. And he says, You're also servants and slaves. Here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and it shall come to pass in the increase that you shall give 20% to Pharaoh, and four parts shall be your own, for seed of the field, for your food, and for them of your household, and for food for your little ones. So he didn't say, um, you're going to die now because you're out of anything to sell. He says, all right, now you will go out and, uh, and co-op the land. Give him 80%, you keep 20%. And that way the land could get uh, farmed. And Pharaoh would still get a 20% tax off of it. And they said, you've saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord, and we'll be Pharaoh's servants. So verse 26, Joseph made it a law over the land of Mitzrayim to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth part except the land of the priests. And Israel dwelt in the land of Mitzrayim in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions therein, and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob didn't die then. He lived another 17 years. Died when he was 147 years of age. So he got to see his grandchildren of Joseph grow up before his eyes. And uh, he made a request that Joseph not bury him there, but take him back to the land, the promised land, and bury him there. And I suspect that Jacob is buried here in this area, and I got a pretty good idea of where. I think we'll see that eventually. Uh, so then is the story that we recounted before of Jacob uh, blessing Joseph's children, Manasseh uh, and Ephraim, and how he had switched the order and put Ephraim first since he had become uh, the firstborn. Uh, through God's instruction, Jacob knew that and made sure that Ephraim got the blessing of the double fruit over Manasseh, just as the United States, which is younger than Great Britain, uh, has gotten a greater blessing than Britain ever got. So the story is exact if you read it here. Then he goes on down and shows the blessing. We went through those. I think I will go through again what it says about Joseph here in verse 22 of chapter 49. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. Now, that's the land that the end-time work was done in, 
up to this point and will be finished in southwestern United States. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. Now, the work, ironically, is not going to be done in the most blessed parts of this land in some respects because uh, it's in the desert part. But did not God tell us to go to the wilderness and to the desert and that he would plant in the desert and the wilderness seven trees there in Isaiah 41? So the work was done in Pasadena in the southwest, the desert area, and it was near the original promised land, which is in southern Utah, northern Arizona, and there the work will be done in the wilderness and in the desert and in the mountains, as Scripture clearly shows. But his bow abode in strength, uh, says the archers came and shot at him, uh, people would make war with Ephraim. But he would be strong, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. Uh, I think I told you about Normandy, or reminded us there, and how God saved us there uh, from the German forces. And he says, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Now, Christ was born a Jew, not an Ephraimite. So what's he saying? He's saying that he would be born in the land of Ephraim. He is the stone of Israel. Now, Christ was born where? Over in the Middle East? Is that a land that is a fruitful bough that runs over the wall? Does it have the greatest blessings on earth? <laughs> no, not at all. Well, where was Christ born then? He had to be born in Ephraim the greatest nation, the most blessed nation with the most natural resources and the wealthiest and the biggest of Israel. He says there would be 10,000 Ephraimites for every thousand Manassites. And we by far are greater in population, probably ten times over, what Britain and uh, all of her uh, daughters have today. So this is telling us right here, if you see it, the Christ was born in this nation. The original promised land had to be in Ephraim. And Christ, the stone, would come from here. The shepherd of Israel. I think that makes it very clear. It has to be in the blessed area, not that which calls itself Judah over there, which has almost nothing in terms of natural resources. And it certainly isn't the biggest and the most blessed by any means. Let those who have ears hear. Even by the God of your Father who shall help you, and by the Almighty who shall bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. You can't say that of the Middle East. The blessings of your Father have prevailed above the blessing of my progenitors under the utmost bound of the everlasting hills the greatest blessings ever seen among the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph, on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. Now, was this land separate from our brethren? Most are still in northwest Europe. Now, some of, the, of Manasseh and perhaps others have migrated to New Zealand, South Africa, and Australia, but... We have been separate from the rest of them and have had the blessings that were far beyond any others. 
Now you figure it out. Which of the peoples that we can say are Israel today have been the most blessed? And where then was Christ the stone and the shepherd of Israel born? Had to be right here. No question about it. Now I've got a few minutes. Let's go to Deuteronomy 33. I'll uh, review three or four places for us. Deuteronomy 33, verse 13. Now here's where Moses is talking about the blessings of the tribes of Israel and how they have been conferred uh, upon the different ones. And Moses is reviewing here what Jacob had said before he died. So let's read what it says about Joseph here. We just read it, as Jacob put it, in uh, 49. But here Moses tells the same story. Of Joseph he said, Blessed of the Eternal be his land. So it's going to be a blessed land. Deuteronomy 8, 7, and 8 says that the promised land would have everything that you need. You could dig iron and brass from the hills. It would have silver and gold, and it would have much, much, much water. And you would need nothing. How many countries can you describe on this planet that are that way? And that little land in the Middle East they call Israel is not that. So it'll be blessed of the land. For the precious things of heaven, for the dew, and for the deep, the couches beneath, from the heavens, from the dew that falls, and from underneath the surface of the earth. We have the greatest mineral resources on earth in this land. It's got to be Joseph. For the precious fruits brought forth by the sun, and for the precious things put forth by the moon. So he's talking about those things which can be grown and harvested. You'll have those blessings beyond anyone else. And for the chief things of the ancient mountains, where do you find most of the treasures and the gold and the silver and the iron in the mountains? For the precious things of the everlasting hills, or of the lasting hills. For the precious things of the earth and the fullness thereof. Great bounty, not just a little, but fullness thereof. And for the good will of him that dwelt in the bush. And not only on top of all these blessings, the good will of God who will protect you from your enemies. And he has up to this point. He's not going to anymore. Let the blessing come upon the head of Joseph and on the top of the head of him that was separated from his brethren. So Jacob separated him from all twelve and even separated Ephraim from Manasseh there. And then he goes on. His glory is like the firstling of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. Now has the horn, the power, the military might, and the political prowess of the United States pushed people anywhere it wanted to on the face of the earth? Who else has? Who else has? Are we the children of Joseph and the children of Ephraim or not? And they are ten the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. So he even separates here, again, that Ephraim would be far greater than Manasseh. 
And we certainly have ten times the population of Great Britain, which I believe is Manasseh. Uh, quickly now, Psalm 80. I'm emphasizing Joseph here, and particularly Ephraim a little bit, because that's who we are. And it's important for us to grasp who we are. If you don't know who you are, what are you going to accomplish? Psalm 80. Uh, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you lead Joseph like a flock. So Joseph is mentioned here prominently as the one that God is leading like a whole flock. You that dwell between the cherubim shine forth. We have geological cherubim up here uh, in southern Utah that are typical or a type of the cherubims of heaven. So he says, Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your strength and come and save us. Now he doesn't mention the other tribes, does he? He mentions Joseph. Uh, and Benjamin, who was Joseph's blood brother, full brother. The others were half-brothers. Is it Britain, the United States, and possibly Canada who will be involved? I'd say so. Uh, Turn us again, O God, and cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Now, are we reading this about ancient Israel? <laughs> or are we reading this about the tribes of Israel today, and specifically spiritual Israel today. We have been spewed out, and we are pleading with God to come and save us. And where is the gathering going to come? Southwestern United States, in the land of Ephraim, where they will again be blessed and saved out of all the peoples of the earth. They'll come from the four corners of the earth to this area. It's where God's going to do it. Psalm 80 is about that. O Lord of ghosts, of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? We've been praying now these 30-some years since we've been taken apart. How long will you be angry? You feed them with the bread of tears and give them tears to drink in great measure. Most of our brethren are dead physically or spiritually. We have seen great, great destruction in the church. You make us a strife to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. So worldwide is gone, and then even the smaller groups have enemies that raise themselves and laugh among themselves about how terribly we have gone down. We're even experiencing that locally. Turn again, O God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. So we can pray this prayer. You have brought us a vine out of Egypt and you have cast out the heathen and planted it. He's going to plant it right out here. He's going to cast the people out of this land. What they've stored up is going to be used by God's remnant. You prepared room before it and did cause it to take deep root and it filled the land. Again, the church will fill the land and Israel will fill the land after uh, the great tribulation. The hills were covered with the shadow of it and the boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars she sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river, reaches out to the whole world, and of course the healing waters will come out from under God's throne in the millennium to heal the nations. 
Why have you then broken down her hedges, so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? The boar out of the wood does waste it, and the wild beast of the field does devour it. We're going to be uh, invaded. We're going to be taken captive by un- the unclean animals, the Gentiles of the world. So return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and visit this vine. We sing this one. The vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. He talks about the branch uh, that he will separate out uh, here at the end for the church. And that's referred to here. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Church has just been decimated. And the nation is about to be. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, the branch, mentioned in Zechariah 4, Zerubbabel, and several places in prophecy. Upon the Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. And Christ uh, is mentioned here, and Zerubbabel is a type of Christ. So will not we go back from you. We will serve you. Uh, Restore us, quicken us, resurrect us, make us live. And we will call upon your name. Ezekiel 37 is a story about that, spiritually to the church and then later to the nation, uh, which has been destroyed in war. Turn again, O eternal God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. So that is our plea now here in this land. Chapter 81. Uh, Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful noise to the God of Jacob. Take a psalm and bring... Hear the timbrel, the pleasant harp with the psaltery. Blow up the trumpet in the new moon. That's when we began. This organization was on the Feast of Trumpets, on the solemn feast day. This was a statute and a law for Israel and a law of the God of Jacob. This is ordained in Joseph. So he says these blessings and this greatness will come in Joseph, Ephraim in particular. Uh, that's where it will happen when he went out through the land of Mitzrayim, where I had heard a language that I understood not. So he says, just like Joseph was called to do a work for God in Egypt, I'll send someone else in the land of Joseph again to restore. So there you have it said again. Uh, I think for sake, well, let's go to Psalm 105. One or two more here. Psalm 105, uh, verse 16. <clears throat> verse 15, saying, Touch my, touch not my anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron, put in prison, until the time that his word came. The word of the Eternal tried him. So Joseph had to be tried and tested, imprisoned twice. The king sent and loosed him, even the ruler of the people, and let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his substance, to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his senators wisdom. And then it talks about how Jacob came and lived in the land of Ham. 
So God delivered through Joseph, and he's going to do it again. Let's, uh, let's see that in Ezekiel 37. <coughs> now here it talks about the valley of dry bones. And most of Israel is going to be killed and become dry bones and physically resurrected at the beginning of the millennium. But this is fulfilled in type by the church ahead of time where the whole church basically is dead. And God has to revive it to resurrect it. Verse 11, Then said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried, our hope is lost. We're cut off for our parts. And he says, I'm going to bring them up. Uh, I'll open the graves. Verse 14, I'll put my spirit in you and you shall live. Uh, and I shall place you in your own land. That's here. Verse 16, Moreover, you son of man, take you one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim. Not Ephraim and Manasseh, but the stick of Ephraim. And for all the house of Israel, his companions. So, he says, take these two sticks, Judah and his brethren, and Ephraim and his brethren, and combine them together. They shall become one in your hand. And when the children of your people shall speak to you, saying, Will you now show us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the eternal God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his fellows, and will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hands. And the sticks whereon you write shall be in your hand before their eyes, and say to them, Thus says the eternal God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, where they are taken captive, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land, and I'll make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. So God is going to bring the remnant to the land of Ephraim. He's going to join the church, spiritual Israel, physical Israel, and all Israelites, both physical and spiritual, together as one. And he's also, he says in Zechariah, going to join Israel, uh, Egypt and Assyria together, and there'll be a third, a third, and a third. So God is going to join together all the peoples of the earth as one under God. And it's going to be done through Ephraim and in the land of Ephraim where we today sit. So there's the story of Joseph and all that God put him through and all that God blessed him with. And now we have seen those prophecies fulfilled within this nation that came down through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, uh, recounted by Moses. And now we have seen the blessing of Israel. We've seen the blessing of the church. We've seen the church come apart. Now we're going to see the nations come apart. And then the Father and the Son are going to come back and begin the millennium and bring them all together in peace once again. So most of the story is behind us, but the, the worst and the best of it is just ahead of us.